Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much for all your support. You guys are amazing. It's very exciting. You take a lunchtime. You sit across from somebody you love. In this case, my man, Daniel Kellison. I am so excited. I think I first became very friendly with him when he was a producer and talent coordinator at the late show with David Letterman. And you knew if you could get on Letterman as a comic when Daniel was there, he didn't put on anybody who wasn't extraordinary. Every comic that I ever worked with, they always wanted to do Letterman. And Daniel was a guy who had a lot of the keys to the kingdom for that. And at the time I was working with Chappelle, and that's all I wanted to do was do Letterman. And Daniel must have come see him 10 times. He didn't book him right away, but he kept looking, kept saying, we're going to figure this out. And so when Dave came to do Letterman, it felt so good. He felt so comfortable. And we all felt so comfortable because Daniel was the kind of person who made everybody feel at ease. And I think Dave probably felt a little too safe. I get to the dressing room upstairs at Letterman. And Dave's there early, he's feeling great, and he's hanging out, he's wearing an NYU sweatshirt and some jeans and some sneakers, and Daniel comes in and says, hey, how you doing? Everything's great, we feel great, and he leaves, and then the executive producer of the show comes in, Bob Morton, Morty as we call him, and he says, how you doing? Dave, feeling good? Yeah, man, I'm feeling great. Uh, what are you wearing? And Dave says, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing this. I just got this NYU sweatshirt, these jeans, the sneakers. <laughs> and Bob says, no, you're not. You're not wearing that. This is Letterman. You can't go out there like that. He picks up the phone. He calls wardrobe. He says, listen, can we get some stuff up here for Dave? Dave, they want you to come down. Look, And Dave's like, but I love this outfit I'm wearing. 
No, you're, you're not wearing that. So they go down. They find a shirt for Dave. The three sizes too big or whatever it is. And there's no sports jacket that works. And Morty takes off his jacket and says, try this jacket on. <laughs> Dave tries it on. It fits. <laughs> and that's the jacket yep. he wore on Letterman the first time he was on. And so Daniel is the kind of guy who really made us feel great. He's taken a lot of hits in his life. And as I watch a clip from Kimmel last night where Daniel is doing a sketch with Jimmy Kimmel and Garth Brooks, I think to myself, here's a guy, Daniel Kellison, who worked at the Jimmy Kimmel show and got fired from the Jimmy Kimmel show. Normally when that happens, relationships are broken. They're irreparable. But you watch this sketch and you see the relationship that these guys have and it's amazing. It's an amazing feeling seeing that kind of thing together. And I felt when I saw it, similar to how I felt when I was in New York and Chappelle said, Barry, come down to the cutting room at 32nd Street, New York. I'm working on my set for SNL. And then you come down and you're there in the room with somebody who is a genius, somebody who has gotten to the highest levels of the business. And I say that because Daniel's work with Letterman, who is a genius. And you get to be there, yet Dave and I worked together for eight years. I was fired. We've heard all the stories of people who stopped working together and they don't even talk to each other anymore. And sometimes even in your mind, no matter how friendly you are with somebody, you have those little doubts. Eh, do they feel the same way about me as I feel about them? And then I'm standing there after Chappelle's show. It's amazing. And he walks by, and I think he's going to walk past me. And he looks over and grabs my arm and says, come on, B, and takes me into the dressing room. I'm sitting on the couch with him and hanging out with him for an hour. And just having an audience with somebody who is a genius, but somebody who I stopped working with. The fact that you can have those kind of relationships, I think, are so important in business. And I think if there's anything to be learned from sitting across from Daniel is the fact that if you can just figure out how to treat people nice on the way up, on the way down, in the transition periods, I think you're always going to be in a position to win. And if you hang around people who you perceive to be brilliantly talented, like the Lettermans and the Kimmels, it just elevates your feeling about the work that you do yourself. And then you say to yourself as a person, maybe I am doing equal or great work as these people because they want to hang around with me. And I think if you create those situations in your life and in your business, I can guarantee you, you will have the kind of career that Daniel Kellison has. And here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am excited. I am sitting across from a man who I've known for a long time who's amazing, Daniel Kellison. I want to give him the proper introduction. 
Daniel Kellison is an Emmy-nominated TV producer, writer, and co-founder of Jack Hole Industries with partners Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla. Among their many shows they created together were Crank Yankers, The Man Show, and he was the original executive producer of Jimmy Kimmel Live. Before that, he spent eight years as a producer for Late Night with David Letterman and Late Show with David Letterman. He also executive produced and co-created shows with Quincy Jones, David Blaine, Rosie O'Donnell, and Kanye West, among others. Daniel Kellison was born in 64 and grew up in a small town in Vermont and went to NYU. He studied playwriting before he realized that wasn't what he wanted to do. And he booked a coveted internship position at the David Letterman Show, where he worked for two semesters. After his unpaid internship ended, a paid researcher job opened up at Letterman. The staff were very, very impressed by Daniel's exceptional application to his job, but he was told that they would nonetheless give the job to someone with more experience. In response, Kellison wrote a letter to the staffer who was in charge of the job. And he wrote, quote, which would you rather have, some old, tired researcher who's been doing the same thing for years and hasn't ever been promoted, or someone young and hungry who's going to kill himself every day to prove himself to you and Dave? Kellison changed their minds with that note and would work for Letterman for a total of eight years, initially as a researcher and eventually as a producer. He left Letterman to executive produce The Rosie O'Donnell Show for eight months in 96 and was nominated for a Daytime Emmy in 1997. Next, Kellison teamed up with Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla to create shows including The Man Show, Frank Anchors, and Jimmy Kimmel Live, The Andy Milanakis Show in 2005, and The Sports Show with Norm MacDonald in 2011. In 2013, Kellison launched JASH, an award-winning digital network with partners Sarah Silverman, Michael Sarah, Tim and Eric, and Reggie Watts, which held their inaugural live comedy festival last April in Palm Springs and created content featuring Jack Black, Scarlett Johansson, and Neil Patrick Harris. Their portfolio includes digital linear series, which have been picked up by MTV, Time, Snapchat, Verizon's Go90, and just sold their sixth series to Comedy Central, who've just announced a straight-to-series order for the High Court with Doug Benson, which Kellison will executive produce. He also founded the Video Podcasting Network, which features video podcasts from Adam Carolla, Earwolf Network, Norm MacDonald, Natasha Leggero, Doug Benson. Kellison was also a contributing writer on Bill Simmons' ESPN Grantland site, where his autobiographical piece, My Letterman Years, was called The Best Journalism of 2015 by Sports Illustrated. And he sits on President Obama's Entertainment Advisory Council Please welcome my guest today, Daniel Kellison. Thank you, Barry. Very nice to be here. It's great to be here, too. I had so many stories that I wanted to tell about you. I'm going to start with what it's like to be with a genius and then make a decision based on money. So here you are at Letterman, and it was almost like you were on a baseball team and you were sort of riding the bench waiting for somebody to die. And then here Rosie O'Donnell comes by and says, listen, I'm starting a show and I want you to be my executive producer. Yeah. And it's going to pay probably five times the amount of money that you're making now. Do you want to do it? And that was a big move for you. Well, I, I knew Rosie, actually, and I, I'd produced her a bunch of times on The Letterman Show, and we had a good rapport, and um, I wasn't looking to go anywhere. I loved working for The Letterman, but at a certain point, at, and being young, you know, in my 20s, uh, 
being there for eight years, it felt like, oh, well, this is, uh, you know, velvet coffin, golden handcuffs, whatever you want to say. And am I going to be at Letterman my entire life? And uh, it was a choice. And so uh, I was happy there, though. I loved it. And it was uh, every day it was, you know, Luciano Pavarotti one day where I'd read a book by Martin Amos and uh, and I'd go back in after break and say, Dave, oh, my God, this book money is so great. Can we book Martin Amos? He'd say, sure. And it was really empowering to be able to have all these people and you have these adventures with David Chappelle or with you. And, you know, every day was an adventure and it was for a kid from Vermont, you know, thrilling. Uh, so it was a hard decision. And um, Rosie, I did know pretty well at that point. And she'd come on the show, and I'd produce her segments, and they went very well. And uh, one time she came on and said, hey, will you produce my you, – you're producing me today, and i got to call you this time. And it's like, oh, actually, uh, I'm producing Mike Judge today, who's another friend of mine. And, and uh, uh, But, you know, the other producer is going to be able to produce you. And she's like, well, I don't like that. And I said, uh, you're going to be fine. And, you know, I don't think from any fault of the producer, she went out and had a bad segment and left – kind of pissed off and said, you know, I was frustrated that that went the way it did. And, and I want you to make sure that I'm never coming on again, unless you produce my segments, which was complimentary to me. Uh, and then about a week later called up and said, uh, Hey, you know, I don't know if you heard this. I sold a show to daytime TV and, uh, um, they have all these producers they want to bring in, but I want to bring in you. I go, okay. So, uh, I, thought about it and I told Dave about it. I told Morty about it before your interview. Uh, no, I actually flew out top secret to Los Angeles and I was so nervous about anyone finding out and they gave me a first class ticket and uh, I flew to Los Angeles to meet with Jim Paratori and the late Jim Paratori, who was a tremendous executive at telepictures and worked so amazingly on so many shows and he passed away at a very young age. So. Yep. And I flew out to go see him and Hillary S. E. McLaughlin. And Hillary McLaughlin, another amazing executive who was at Telepictures for probably 25 years. And so I was trying to be top secret about it. And who do I sit next to in my first class seat? But Terry Garr, who's a, a staple of the David Letterman show, uh, Late Night and Late Show. And she's like, what are you doing on this plane? And I was like, uh, I don't know. She's like, does Morty know you're out here? I was like, oh, please don't tell him. It's like, what am I doing on a first-class plane? There's no reason. So I got out to Los Angeles, and Jim Paratori says, you know, I just want you to know, you probably don't have the experience for this. And we're looking at a lot of other people. And uh, But, you know, we wanted to get your take on it. And we, I started talking about sort of doing a late-night show in daytime with Rosie, and that's what we've been talking about. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, we've got a couple of people, but, uh, you know, it's nice to meet you kind of thing. And uh, Rosie's like, he's lying. We don't have any other people. I want you to do this job. And they know that. And Jim and Hillary both like look down like, oh, shit. <laughs> and so I go back to New York and uh, Dixon, who is uh, your agent, who has been a guest on the show, is also Kimmel, Corolla, John Stewart, Harrison Bill Simmons, Sal Icano, uh, Tony Barbieri, a bunch of people. Sal being his know, biggest client. His nemesis and client. Yes. His favorite client, I would say. Carson Daly or, or Sal. Uh, anyway, the, it was a little bit catbird seat because I didn't have to take the job. I had the job at Letterman. I was very happy there. and uh, But I didn't think Morty was going anywhere anytime soon, and that was sort of the next post. And uh, so Dixon said, and by the way, how Dixon became my agent is one of my favorite stories of all, which is that I didn't have an agent, and I was in charge, as you said, with the comedians. And when John Stewart 
left MTV, I had an idea with Donna Carey and Spike Ferris, and I think, to um, uh, do an alt Friday night show instead of Tom Snyder, alt comedy, alt music with John Stewart. And I told John about it, and John said, uh, um, that's great. And I told Dave about it. And then John called and said, hey, what's going on with this? And I said, I can't get your agent, James Dixon, on the phone. And uh, Dixon needed me at the time. He had Dennis Leary and Ray Romano and a bunch of comedians. And and I was sort of, we had a good relationship. This is when James was at William Morris. Yep. William Morris, he calls me up and he goes, I don't know who the fuck you think you are telling my client at his most vulnerable moment that you can't get me on the phone, but fuck you, Daniel. And starts yelling at me. And I start laughing. And I go, I want an agent who's going to yell at somebody else on my behalf the way you're yelling at me right now. <laughs> and if I ever get an agent, I want you to be my agent. And he starts laughing, and he became my agent. <laughs> so uh, we go to getting back to the Rosie story. So I get back to uh, New York. I tell Dixon that they say that they only want me. And Rosie said that. He goes, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to return their calls for two days. It's going to drive them up a fucking wall. They need this right away. I keep getting calls already that they need this right away. We're not going to return their calls. I go, I don't know that I like that idea. He says, trust me, baby. You've got nothing to <laughs> That's lose. That's why they call him baby doll. It's always trust me, baby. Yeah. So uh, he goes, even if Rosie calls you, don't call her back. It's going to be okay. I'm like, oh, shit. So, of course, they start calling like crazy and uh, like leaving messages. Hey, we can't get Dixon on the phone. What the fuck's going on? Please call us back. And Dixon and then Rosie called. And I didn't call Rosie back either. And I told her later it was this negotiation tactic. And he goes, you got nothing to lose. So uh, Dixon made me the most incredible deal ever with Rosie. I had an ownership stake in that show. Um, I got paid, as you said, five times what I got paid. They, they were desperately trying to figure out what I got paid a letterman, but they had no way of doing it. They couldn't ask anybody. Uh, it was an amazing deal. And then I told Dave about it, and he was really nice about it. He was very gracious about it. He, he supported me personally. I had a good relationship with him at the time. And, you know, it's funny, he used to give people watches as gifts. And I remembered that I always wanted one of those Breitling watches that he gave people like that were important to him. And he gave me a case of wine as a go away gift, as a going away gift. And uh, I looked it up recently and I have most of it in my house. And it's a Chateau Lafitte Rothschild from 1982. And it's about $10,000 a bottle. And uh, I have a case of it in my house. I shouldn't say that. But you know what I mean? Like somebody used to break in. Amazing. I, but anyway, he was so nice to me always. And and when I went to Rosie, everyone used to say, uh, uh, Rosie, queen of nice, you know? And I was like, uh, no, Dave's the nice one. Dave was the one who always really took great care of me. And uh, uh, Rosie and I were just never a great fit. Yeah. What time of day do you choose to walk in and talk to Dave? Well, I talked to him every day. I mean, I had a really interesting relationship with the guy, and it started, and I think maybe it will interest your uh, listeners. But I'll tell it to you. It's it's how I started there, and I, I don't think I've told it before um, publicly. But when I started at Letterman, um, it was sort of a nerve-wracking thing. Dave was an icon to all of us, and he was our hero. And we really didn't have a lot of interaction with him. And... Um, it was his birthday, and I'd been there for about a year. I'd been an intern, and then I was a researcher. And my only real interaction with him was one time playing softball. I robbed him of, like, a home run. And uh, and his assistant said to me as I left the field and I was an intern, nice career-ending catch. <laughs> <laughs>
And I was like, that was my only interaction with Dave up until that point. So in a year, he never said a word to you. But he didn't talk to anyone really at that point. He was really sort of, uh, I mean, he was talking to producers and stuff, but it was very, he, it wasn't like he was walking around the office, you know, interacting with a bunch of people. So his birthday comes up and everyone wanted to give him a gift that was meaningful. And people would give him very expensive gifts and caviar and this and the other thing. And uh, I gave him a book. And uh, the book... You know, about a month and a half later, Lori Diamond, his assistant, the one who said nice career ending catch, comes in and says, uh, um, did one of you guys give Dave a book for his birthday? Like, almost annoyed. Did one of you guys give Dave a book for his birthday? And I look around, it's Mary Connolly, he's now the EP over at uh, Ellen, and uh, Paul Penolino, uh, who's the other researcher. And uh, I said, I gave him a book, and Dave wants to see you. So... I go into Dave's office. What are you feeling inside? Sick to my stomach. <laughs> Absolutely nauseous. Uh, why did he give me this book? And I go, and it, the book's called This Boy's Life by Tobias Wolf. And I go, I, I literally, uh, no other reason other than I just finished reading it. And I thought it was a good book. And I went to give you, and I gave you the book. He's like, well, this is sort of my life story uh, in words here. And this is an, this is an amazing book. And um you know, what do you know about it? I go, I, I've read another book by this guy, Tobias Wolf, and I like him, uh, but I don't know much else. And uh, so why don't you see who owns the movie rights? And I was a kid researcher, and I'm like, okay. So I go back to the office. I'm like, how do we figure out who owns the movie rights? And we all help each other. And uh, it was bought by Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio started it. So I told him all that. And then a uh, uh, couple days after that, uh, Dave wants to see you again. So I started like hanging out and we'd have lunch and uh, uh, talk and we became friendly. And then when the opportunity came to become a producer, uh, I got promoted. This is the thing that I remember you telling me that I loved. I said, how as an intern do you get to the next level? You said, Barry, you just make yourself invaluable. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what I thought. I thought if somebody throws up on the set, I'm going to be the first one there. I'll take my shirt off and mop it up. Like, I'm going to do all the shit that nobody else wants to do. I'm going to be the first one there in the morning, the last one there at night. I want people to tell me to go home. That's what I want. And I, I made that my mission because I knew there were 13 other interns there. And uh, I was 24, which is old as an intern because it took me, like, John Belushi, eight years to get through college, you know, at NYU. And uh, I was like, this is going to be my shot. And uh, this is guy's my hero, and I want to make sure I get the job. And there were a lot of must hires, you know, people, sons and daughters of executives, who were already cozy there and took it for granted that they were supposed to be there, and uh, you know, whooping it up. And I was like, I'm gonna just fucking bust my ass. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna I'm gonna work harder than everyone there. And and I had Steve O'Donnell take great care of me as an internal letterman at the height of being the head writer, which is the most coveted position in television, on the hottest TV show, which is David Letterman. I was a college intern. He took me to lunch and went through my ideas with me. I never forgot that. So I always sort of try to encourage interns and assistants and, and come up with stuff. I remember Bonnie Hunt working on her show, pulling them all in and saying, here's my email. Tell me your ideas, your thoughts, anything. And two people out of 12 sent me an email. And they both work with me now over Josh. So it's like, you know, I, I just don't understand these opportunities. I don't take them for granted. I don't like it when other people don't take them for granted, but it's a great way of sort of figuring out who's making the cut and who's not because eight out of 10 will just drop out. We'll just not make it obvious to you that they're not the right choice. So that's sort of how I view it. It's like, who's hungry? You know, who, who's, who, I mean, I didn't have 
I, I grew up, two of my best friends came from well-to-do families, and I did the whole, I mean, everyone's got their sob story, but the paper route and the, I worked in a health food store when I was 14, opening, closing, cleaning up all the crap, doing all this sort of odd jobs to make money. I had a real hunger in me to be successful, and I think that that's what people need to have. They have to fire in their belly, and, uh, and there's a lot of complacency, and there's a lot of sort of um, coddling, and, there's, and, and I sound like, you know, an old codger when I talk about this stuff. And, and in fact, I look at this new generation, and I'll surprise you probably by saying this, but I think they are a better generation. I think they're more caring for each other. Like we yelled at, at Letterman, everyone's yelling at each other all the time. There's a lot of like cutthroat competition definitely happening there at that level and boot campy yelling. And like, I like the new generation where everyone's not yelling. I like people being nicer. I like that. And I aspire to be that way. I think that's a younger generation thing, probably the fruits of our labor as parents. But I, I, I so I don't totally, yeah, I'm, I'm torn on, on people being cutthroat and people being caring for each other. I think it's better to be caring, but I do like the eye of the tiger too. Tell our audience the last time you lost your temper. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, I, unfortunately, I look at it, it's so funny for me because I do lose my temper. And, and I look at it as a sign of intellectual weakness. When I see other people yelling, I think, oh, that's not a very smart person. That's a dumb person acting out because you should be able to intellectualize it and figure out a way to articulate your frustrations without yelling like a lunatic. Um, we're having a situation right now. We're doing this show, High, uh, high Court with Doug Benson, where he smokes pot on the show. And it's sort of a pioneering show and it's sort of interesting. And I'm having troubles with the fire marshal. And I don't, they're not citing any code and they're not citing any, they're just saying it's their policy. You can't smoke pot and there's no law. And so that was a screaming match the other day. Not a screaming match, but I lost my temper with this fire marshal. And I, you know, it just frustrates me because you know it's it's bureaucracy and 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 there's no reason and it was sort of like what don't you understand you can't do it i was like but why what's what's the law what are you talking about like and and i think we'll win that ultimately and you know uh uh i called the aclu and we're they're helping and it's uh but it's it's yeah it's frustrating to me when you run into as everybody when you run into people who don't care and uh bureaucracy that frustrates me and i yell that's an interesting thing. You know, you do a show with Doug Benson, talented guy, uses drugs every day. Normally in our profession, if you have somebody with any semblance of talent who's smoking weed every day, chances are they're not going to make it. But there are exceptions, including Dave Chappelle, who probably used to smoke a bag of weed a day and is a genius. But normally, if you were booking Letterman... Mm -hmm back then and there were 10 comedians yeah. and they were all equal and you knew that some of them smoked pot every day would not matter to me a lick really would not even think twice about it i think everything in moderation i don't have a problem with it if people are in control of their lives and if you look at faulkner or hemingway or all the people who wrote drunk fitzgerald they created such great art you know and and uh Probably wouldn't have been, I look at the jazz. I mean, jazz wouldn't exist if it weren't for heroin. I mean, I don't know what to say. It's like, it's like it, great art comes from this stuff a lot of times, and comedy especially. Mm -hmm. Comedy is born from neuroses, and very frequently the most neurotic people are the funniest, right? And, uh, and, and within that reality, when they step off the stage, 
when they go to their apartments or their homes, they are left with their thoughts and it is very difficult for a lot of them to function and a lot of them function through self-medication. And I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but it's how the majority of our world survives, I feel like, uh, especially in the arts. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. I'd like to go way back to where you grew up in Vermont. And then what was the first inspiration in your life to get into this crazy entertainment business? Okay. Uh, I'm from, uh, I was born in New York City, and my mother was married four times. I have a grandfather, her father was married seven times. Uh, we, uh, my mom's first husband was my dad, and then she married a guy who turned out to be gay. And in the middle of the night in New York City, uh, 1971, I was six years old. And uh, she found out this guy was gay, and we drove in the middle of the night to Vermont to a commune uh, called Packers Corner, and uh, we moved there and in the dead of the night. And uh, my... Did she tell you why at that time? No. 
found out later. But she walked in on the best man and uh, her husband having sex. That's uh, what we found out later. And left in the middle of the night to this commune. Um, she ended up hooking up with this guy who was running the commune. Uh, left some, un I had a grandmother. She had an apartment, they had an apartment in New York and the grandmother wanted my mom to, you know, take care of business and she then so she hired a lawyer in Vermont and being my stepfather was sort of buttoned up guy Dartmouth College um, so he was a lawyer he became my stepdad I have a bunch of brothers and sisters we don't really qualify the step part of it all because it's all so chaotic uh, but you know my brother Rob Anderson right so he's a producer here in Los Angeles also a comedy producer um, we grew up in a small town in Vermont Brattleboro um, I wanted, my mom sort of supported me, believed that I could do anything. And so um, I wanted to write, I, and I wanted to be a playwright. And uh, she's like, oh, good for you, honey, kind of thing. So I went to NYU, uh, got into sort of the remedial studies program at NYU, which is the one where you can't really get into NYU, the general studies. And uh, uh, But once I got in there, I was like, okay, I got to get into this regular Tisch School of the Arts. How'd you pay for NYU? Uh, I, had a, I had a scholarship, I had a Pell Grant, I had a student loan, um, I worked, I bartended my entire time. I even bartended the first two years I worked at Letterman because I made about two, $300 a night bartending, made $450 a week at Letterman and I didn't want to give up the bartending gig. So I uh, always uh, bartended. Tony Barbieri, who's a writer at Kemmel right now, he and I were bartenders at NYU together. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's sort of how it all started. And um, in terms of, I, I I just never thought for a moment that I couldn't achieve it, except that uh, I realized in that NYU playwriting class, I was like, oh shit, these guys are really talented and I'm not so talented, and I better figure out a plan B, which is sort of, uh, Letterman was my hero. I talk about it in my Grandland piece, I took a hit of acid, had this sort of epiphany while I was tripping that Letterman was my hero and wanted to work with him. So you have this hallucination about Letterman. It wasn't a hallucination. It was sort of coming down. It was sort of an epiphany, like I'm fucking up my life. I'm going to be an alcoholic, uh, failed playwright, and i got to figure out something else quickly, and I'm 24, and what am I doing? I'm chasing all these miserable entertainments of you know getting drunk and trying to meet girls, and it's like a path to nowhere. And Letterman was my hero, and I called the next day and said, hey, do you take interns? I thought, if I can get in the door, I can do anything kind of thing. I just believe that. I don't know why, and uh, I was a C student, and there's no reason to believe that. I just sort of thought, if I can get in there, I'll do it. I just don't know why, but it was sort of my thing. And uh, I've always been um, you know, confident about situations. I don't know. Uh, and that's, I think, with Letterman, part of the reason I got along with him was that everyone walked around in pins and needles around that guy, and I just talked to him like a regular guy, and uh, I'd say, like, oh, you know, I, I'd tell him, like, I got stoned yesterday. I was watching Wide World of Sports, and I was thinking, uh, watching the cliff diving, the Acapulco cliff diving, I thought, oh, it would be cool if we did this on 53rd Street. Wouldn't it be cool if we had him diving off buildings like that? <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, we should do that. He's like, okay, well, you think you do it? I go, yeah. So we did it, you know, that kind of thing. And it really was sort of... Uh, Every day we talk to these people like Pavarotti. Or, and I remember David Cohn after winning the World Series for the Mets saying to me, dude, you got the coolest job in the world. And I was like, dude, you just were the MVP of the, of the World Series. You told me I got the coolest job. And like, I started believing it. I was like, this is the coolest job in the world. So yeah, I was always very comfortable talking to people um, and, and interviewing people. And even later, as I, you know, we're talking about this before interviewing uh, with Jonathan, right? 
uh, that, that uh, you know, I used to have segment producers and they'd like, oh, my God, they only gave me two minutes. I got nothing out of them. And I always felt like I couldn't get off the phone with them because you engage people in conversation and they like open up to you and they talk to you and you become friends with them. And that's sort of the trick, just being comfortable with people and being confident when you talk to them. Uh, you can get everything, you know? Well, apparently you could get everything because some of the most famous segments on the show were things that you were involved in. And I'll just mention a few of them one by one and I'll have you comment on them if you don't mind. Peter O'Toole. We did a week of shows in London with Dave Letterman and uh, we had a bunch of guests that were sort of big guests for us. And and Peter O'Toole is, you know, royalty uh, as an actor and he'd been on the show a bunch of times and I'd never produced him before. And, uh, but I knew that he was a great storyteller, but I wanted to do something different with him. And I said, uh, you know, I got him on the phone and we're in London. And I said, uh, you know, the way that I'm looking at it, you kind of have two choices. You can come in on a rope, like in my favorite year, or on a camel, like Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> and he said, uh, my dear boy, I most certainly will not be coming in on a rope. <laughs> Nor will I be coming in on a camel. So what's your next question for me? And I go, please, these shows are so important to us. And like, we really want to have big entrances. And this is something that's great. Please, it would mean so much. He goes, I'll tell you what, if you find a, and I'll stop doing my poor Peter O'Toole impression (laughs) here. If you find a racing camel, uh, uh, I'll come in and make an entrance on a camel. But you won't find one in England. I go, okay, that's all I need to hear hung up the phone. We started looking everywhere around England for a racing camel (laughs) and calling zoos and calling everywhere we could think of. And finally we found one and, uh, uh, brought it in. I think it cost us two, 3000 pounds to get it there. (laughs) And I remember there's this great loading dock with elephant doors and I had the camel in the garage and I went to go meet Peter O'Toole as he got out of his limousine and I went, (laughs) ta-da. And he looked at the camel, he goes, that most certainly is not a racing camel. <laughs> that is a common zoo camel. <laughs> and I go, no, it's a racing camel. He goes, it's a zoo camel. <laughs> I go, oh, my God, I'll lose my job. I didn't think I'd really lose my job. I was like, I'll lose my job if you don't do this. Like, uh, please, you have to come in. And he goes, no, I won't. And I was like, please, I'm begging you. And, and he finally sort of acquiesced and said he would do it. And I got pissed off at the time at the... The fucking guy who ripped me off, the zoo guy, who <laughs> told me he had a racing camel. I was like, zoo camel. And we were doing Stupid Petrix at the top of that show, and uh, a British version of it. So I said to the guy, I go, and I remember being pissed at him about it. And I said, well, does this camel do anything? Like, it would be great, maybe. Like, you redeem yourself here if this camel could do something. And he goes, no, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> I go, fucking shit. And then his buddy goes, it enjoys a drop of lager every now and then, though. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, like, it likes to drink a beer every now and then. I was like, oh. I go, really? And he goes, yeah. So if you watch this segment, you'll see Peter O'Toole comes in on the camel. And it's a great big entrance. You can see it on YouTube. And at the end, he dismounts, and he's got a big oil can of Heineken in his pocket, and he pops it, and the camel chugs this beer, all like 22 ounces of it, and spits the can on the floor empty, and the audience went crazy. (laughs) And it was actually on the cover of this bloated magazine, the camel chugging this (laughs) beer, and Letterman's like, now that's a stupid Petrick. You know, like, it was a great way for him to come in, but that's Peter O'Toole. 
Drew Barrymore. That was a cool story. So Drew Barrymore and I were friendly at the time, and she was 19 years old, 18, 19 years old. And uh, there was this place called Blue Angel in New York that was sort of a pioneering, uh, it's sort of like a fancy strip club. It wasn't even a strip club, it was a cabaret. And there would be, you know, all these students um, sort of sowing their oats, rebelling against their parents, uh, Pratt art students, like, with pig masks on and dumping chow mein on their naked bodies and Catholic girls, Frank Zappa songs, doing wax all over their bodies and saw some of the craziest things ever there. And I remember telling Letterman about it and saying, you, you got to go check it out. It's sort of this cool cabaret. It's actually near your house. And Letterman saying, uh, okay, yeah, I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. Like kind of, I thought, blowing me off. And then uh, Lori Diamond leaving messages on my answering machine going, Dave is looking for you. He walked into a bar. He said he got surrounded. He went home. He's pissed off. And I was like, oh, shit. I didn't really think that he was actually going to meet me and see this thing. And uh, But so Drew Barrymore, and this is the days before TMZ, um, also gone to this place, Blue Angel. And it was in the cover of the New York Post the next day that Drew Barrymore got naked on the stage and walked around the stage. And again, nobody had phones, cameras, anything. And uh, uh, we were, as was the day back then, you know, she didn't cancel. It was all the press, everyone wanted to talk to her. And she didn't cancel. And it was Letterman's birthday. And uh, she honored the pre interview, got on the phone with me. And she said, Dan, it was so liberating. I just, I had never felt anything so great in my life. And I told her the story of trying to get Letterman to go down and check it out. And uh, she said, um, oh my God, he would love it so much. I go, yeah, I don't think he's gonna do it. I go, but uh, you know, um, I guess, and again, this is before publicists would get on the phone. Um, I said, you can give him a little thrill. And this is, I feel bad about this now. I probably shouldn't have said anything, but you know, if you want to give him a little dance for his birthday, he doesn't get out much. I'm sure he'd appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, she kind of laughed. She said, oh, she was like, well, how would I do it? I go, well, if you flashed him, the audience isn't going to see. He's the only one who would see. She goes, well, tell Paul to get some vamp music, but I'm not sure I want to do it. And you can't tell anybody. Oh, th but this is the funny part about Morty. Has Morty been on? Yes. Okay. Robert Morton. Robert Morton, the executive producer. I said to Morty before, and I go, dude, I, I, I'm a little bit nervous because Dave was sort of pure, prudish a little bit with this stuff. He didn't like, uh, you know, like when Madonna came on and swore, like, I thought it's great TV. He was pissed off. He thought, you know. So I was nervous about it. I said, Morty, uh, what do you think um, about, I told him the story. I said, what should I do about Drew? Should I let her do this. What do you think? He goes, your call. I go, well, it's not my call. You're the executive producer. It's your call. He's like, your call, Danny, and like walked away. So uh, I just figured I I felt pretty comfortable, confident, comfortable with my job at that time. So uh, she did it. She walked out and uh, started the music and flashed Dave. And uh, um, and Dave was, you know, thrilled. I mean, he enjoyed it. It was like, you know, uh, it was great. And, and I think Drew Barrymore was the right person to do it. I think Courtney Love tried it later and didn't go as well. But like, you know, like... Uh, but I think that I, Drew was the perfect one to do it with him and, and, and forever bonded them together. So let's talk about the Rosie O'Donnell show. So you leave Letterman. Yeah. Letterman's gracious. He's wonderful with you. You yeah. keep the relationship with and him. By the way, you know that I saw Letterman two weeks ago. It was incredible because I've seen Letterman a half dozen times since leaving the show probably. 
And it's always been very perfunctory and it kind of hurt my feelings. Sort of like, hey, nice to see you, Daniel. How's it going? You know, that kind of thing. I'm like, we used to be friendly. And it kind of hurt my feelings a little bit that it was that way. And uh, um, he agreed to do Norm MacDonald's podcast. And, uh, and Jerry Seinfeld also agreed to do it. And we went to New York to record it. And what was really nice and lovely about that experience was it wasn't a group of people around Dave. He was there with Tom and Mary who worked with him and uh, was there for a couple hours. And we actually had this like really nice talk. We talked for a long time and it felt really good because it felt horrible. The five preceding times I'd seen him just felt very businesslike. And he's, you know, at, I don't know whether you can say it about a guy his age, but he's matured. He's a more well-rounded guy now and he's uh, warmer and, uh, and, you know, engaged. And it really felt great to sort of be able to have that with him. All right. So you're at Rosie O'Donnell. Mm -hmm. How many days in do you realize I'm not a good fit for the show? So that show was interesting in that uh, uh, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And, you know, in the seven months that I was there, we probably fired over 20 people. And when I say we, I mean me. And I was a kid in my 20s. And I was firing people right and left. And, you know, I was told that this was sort of, you know, typical of these shows that they go through these growing pains. But we went through four directors in the first four and a half months and a certain point or maybe three directors and they're sort of diminishing returns at a certain point. You know, you start going through these directors and they don't get better. So then we tried four out over the next couple months. So we went through seven directors you know, fired over 20 people, I would say. But the show started off well, but people are watching around the country. They don't know there's a new director. She would say on the air, like, oh, that light bulb pop, uh, fire that electrician. And like, literally, it's a guy who's a union guy from NBC for 20 some odd years, and you'd make the change. And it was brutal. And it was, uh, and it was, you're right, it was a happy time. And Rosie was still in the closet. And uh, it was something that, you know, was, you know, the uh, something that was still really um, not being discussed, and I I encouraged her to come out of the closet, and uh, that was that was something that wasn't well received. I told her, imagine how many people she could make happy, and I also said to her, you know, and we were we did have a relationship at that time where we talked about stuff, and I I did say to her also like. You know, if you can't find happiness at this moment when you're the queen of nice and making so many other people happy in the world, which she was, I mean, that show was so like was so important to so many women because it was like a normal person on a normal show. It's like you got to be able to find happiness here. And, and it was really a struggle for Rosie. And I don't, you know, as we talked about with everybody else and like I, as I get older, I get more circumspect about it and I don't sort of just blank dismiss it. But it was such an uh, upheaval in my life to be fired after seven months. And like it was at a time when we just won sweeps and she was in love with Tom Cruise and we just booked Tom Cruise and we were crushing. And I literally walked into the office and uh, Jim Paratori said to me, um, give me your keys and your ID card. And I was like, what? And I was like, I had no idea what was happening. And like, I mean, and Rosie was there and. And I was like, what, what's going on? And it's like, we need somebody who's got more experience in daytime. I, go, well, I thought you wanted a late night show in daytime. And I thought that's what I gave you. And it was just this sort of like, oh, well, this makes perfect sense. 
I should get fired. I've had to fire all these different people. Karmically, it's gone around, and uh, and that was that. And like, I think now when I look back on it, I had an ownership stake in that show that was substanti- substantial, and that was going to increase the longer I was there. And I think Telepictures was unhappy about it, and Warner Brothers was unhappy about it. And I took a settlement. I shouldn't have taken the settlement. I should have sued. But William Morris told me that I should take the settlement. Um, looking back on it, wouldn't have hurt my career at all to sue. And I probably should have sued. So you're in the room. She's yeah. there. You're looking at her. She was crying. You know, it was a uh, really... Uh, it was a... You know, I saw her at Howard Stern's birthday party recently. I hadn't seen her in 20 years. I saw her in an airport once and just sort of put my head down and kept moving. Um, but we had a nice talk. But, uh, yeah, it was really like uh, I think she was sort of vulnerable and um, and not in a great place mentally. And, uh, you know, um, I don't think that I was in, in hindsight, I don't think I was equipped to run that show as a kid in my 20s. But at the same time, I'd done it creatively very successfully. I think if they'd really been interested in having somebody sort of run the machinery of that show, which I was not equipped to do, sort of the the line producing of it all is, you know, it's a couple hundred million dollar enterprise at that point. Um, you know, I understand that, but, but at the same time, you know, uh, yeah, I don't, it, what sucked was it sort of precipitated my divorce. It, uh, I was immediately, um, sort of felt spit out and I was getting calls like, Hey, do you want to executive produce Lisa? I was like, what the fuck did I do with my career? I totally fucked it up. And I remember your ex and there was a photo that you had of her in your office that I always loved. And it was her swing a baseball bat. Yeah. I'll never forget that. And I just thought to myself, when I saw you guys together, it just shows you how fragile things are. Well, I had to find a job and I started going out to California. And and at the time there were um, four shows, about six months I didn't work and literally sitting around, you know, clawing my own skin. And, uh, then they decided they wanted something to replace Arsenio. So all of a sudden, and you know how this works. So like there's three Janis Joplin biopics all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> so like this is uh, all of a sudden everyone decides somebody's got to replace Arsenio. So there's John Sally, there's Keenan Ivy Wayans, um, there's Magic Johnson, two basketball players, by the way. By the way, John Sally's pilot, believe it or not, was by far the best. By one. far. And then the fourth one was Quincy Jones wanted to do a show called Vibe. And uh, I said to... Dixon, I'm like, I want to go meet Quincy Jones. And they're like, oh, he wants a black producer. I go, okay, well, see if I can still have a meeting with him because I know a lot about hip-hop and I know a lot about jazz. <laughs> he goes, okay, well, Quincy's going to meet with you. And uh, so I go out there and we start talking about Milt Jackson and Ray Charles. And, like, I know a lot about this stuff. And I have 100 questions for him. And we end up having dinner together and having a great time. And I go back, and I'm actually in Dixon's office with William Morris. And he's like, uh, Quincy Jones is uh, on the phone. He wants to talk to you. And so Dixon goes, you want to hear what he has to say? And I go, of course, you know, let's hear. So he puts it on, uh, puts it on mute and uh, puts me on speaker or whatever. And Quincy goes, when Daniel walked in, I said, this is the whitest motherfucker I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, but I like him. And if we can't find the right producer, I want to hire him. So, uh, I ended up uh, getting hired to work with Quincy. You got hired before they hired the host or after they hired the host? Well, Here's the thing, and I like Chris Spencer. Who got the gig as the host. Right. They put together a sizzle with Chris, sort of a greatest hits. 
they did Chris Spencer the greatest disservice of any person I've ever seen in my life. And it was the most horribly racist thing I've ever seen, which is they brought in an addiction coach, uh, Columbia TriStar did, when the show was struggling, and the struggle wasn't to do with anything other than, you know, Chris's probably not that not being his calling. But they brought in an addiction coach to make him speak differently. Um, they had us micro-producing him with giant cue cards. It was, you know, I, I to this day feel so bad for him. And uh, it was not was not a great experience, except I became great friends with Quincy and David Salzman and Chris. And then they brought in Sinbad, who they paid, I think they paid him uh, $250,000 a week to replace Chris Spencer. And uh, Sinbad would come in at 4 o'clock and do the show and leave right after. But that was a disaster. So that ends. What's <laughs> next for you? Well, what happened next uh, was the greatest thing that ever happened was uh, – Another James Dixon client, John Stewart, and I were great friends. And John uh, came to Los Angeles. This was before he was John Stewart, John Stewart, and said, "Hey, uh, I've got. The, I'm going to this concert called the Weenie Roast, and do you want to go with me?" And I said, "Sure, I'd love to go with you." And uh, we went to the concert, and uh, there were two DJs there: um, Adam Carolla and, and Jimmy Kimmel from K Rock. And it was their concert, Weenie Roast. And uh, we all hung out and had a great time together. And Adam was just starting on Love Line, and I was a big fan of Adam. Uh, and we decided we were all going to get together afterwards, which we did. And uh, Jimmy, at that time, told me he had an idea for a show. He'd been auditioning for all these uh, morning shows with, like, Kathy Lee and Regis-type shows. And everyone was saying, you got to be more appealing to women. He's like, I had an idea that what if I did a show that didn't have to appeal to women that just only appealed to guys? It was the man show and we could have explosions and chimps and farting and drinking and everyone could do whatever they wanted. We didn't have to give a shit about women. And I was like, that's a great idea. And, uh, we sold it to ABC and actually to Michael Davies bought that show. And, uh, that was the first thing he brought. If you read the Disney Wars book, You'll read an entire chapter of how Michael Davies almost lost his job and how Michael Eisner and Bob Iger were, like, disgusted by it. And uh, we thought we were going right on Saturdays at 10 o'clock. We flew to New York, and uh, we didn't get it. And uh, But Comedy Central bought it. I don't know whether it was 13 or 22 at the top, but it was a lot, and uh, they paid us our network fees, which was great. Quick translation, that means the big money quotes as opposed to the basic cable quotes. Yeah, it worked out great. I mean, uh, Dixon made that deal, and that was actually when uh, Jimmy and Adam, you know, I think were unhappy with their agent situation. I was like, come work with a baby doll over here, and uh, that was sort of a big moment. Does baby doll send you residual checks every year? He very nicely gave me a phone call, and he said uh, how much it meant to him because uh, I really indirectly it helped him with almost all of his clients uh, other than Colbert and Stewart, you know, that Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla and Carson Daly and Bill Simmons and Sal and all those guys were sort of through Tony and through a relationship with me. What did he say on the phone? He said, uh, he said, I'm going to do something for you because I think he sold this company for, we're speculating about $50 million, but we don't know. Uh, and, uh, I said, oh, that, I go, you don't have to do anything. And he's like, no, it's not going to be like a million dollars. I'm going to do something for you. But, and he also said that he was going to take all of us on a trip. So both of those things, we'll see. Still haven't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe his wife got hold of him and said, uh, 
Yeah, let's not be so uh, quick with this. Kumail Nanjiani, by the way, told me he was going to buy me a car for helping him get with Mike Judge on Silicon Valley. I haven't gotten that car yet either. Talk about how Jimmy Kimmel Live came about. We done a hundred episodes of uh, Hen Show, and then we did Crank Yankers. We had Andy Milanakis. We had a lot of TV on the air at the time, and uh, we decided we weren't going to do the Man Show anymore. And Jimmy really decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And that was when. Um, you know, we said we weren't going to do it anymore. And they're like, wait, what? Because it was doing well in the ratings. And we didn't want it to continue, but they continued it. And, you know, I think the secret of that show's success is that it had a 40% female audience. That we were always never about sort of as much as it was, you know, seen or viewed, especially by people who didn't know it. It wasn't misogynistic ever. It was always about guys or chumps. I mean, Jimmy and Adam were never sort of... Um, they were never creepy in their sort of, it wasn't lascivious and sort of creepy and like, uh, let's get these girls kind of thing. They were more interested in each other. And uh, I think that uh, when Stan Hope and uh, um, Joe did it, and I don't think it's any fault of theirs, they didn't understand that that was sort of the secret of the show. And they made it creepy and weird. And Stone Stanley were guys who weren't involved in the creative of that show. And they just, they probably, I mean, they weren't involved in the show. So uh, uh, in terms of the creative, so I think that was sort of everyone's preconception of what it was and it didn't work. So Jimmy gets the call to do Jimmy Kimmel Live and then what happens? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, then we started working on the show and setting it up and what happened was uh, Michael Davies, I think, and I think I'm speaking of something that everybody knows, that Jon Stewart was being considered to be the host. One thing you might not know, one person was offered the show before Jimmy now Kimmel I got heard this show. about Jay Moore. I don't know whether I believe it or not. I was there with Michael Eisner in the room. By the way, here's what I know also, um, is that Jimmy was an afterthought for this in terms of Michael Davies brought this videotape to... Um, Lloyd Braun and said, look at this guy. And it was Jimmy from The Man Show. And he's, and I think the, the story goes that Lloyd was like, oh my God, this guy's great. Where'd he come from? And it had to be reminded, this was the guy you guys had for The Man Show that you guys didn't want, right? And then it went to Comedy Central for 100 episodes and here we are 100 episodes later. And I think that uh, at that point, Lloyd um, got excited um, and was very enthusiastic and a great champion of the show and let us sort of do whatever we wanted to do. But he said, like, let's make this sort of a party for guys late at night. I remember something that happened, again, involving Jay Moore. Jimmy and his staff wrote this incredibly edgy sketch. He probably spent $10,000 flying over basically the Japanese version of New Kids on the Block. Uh-huh. Oh, that's right. We did that, yeah. And you did a sketch where they were all in these bathrobes, yeah. and Jay was sitting down on a chair, yeah. and one guy was in front of him, center, with the camera behind him, with his head going back and forth, looking like... He was giving Jay oral sex, but he was actually doing something else, like a nail or something like yeah. that. And I had heard that that night, Jimmy Kimmel got a call from Michael Eisner yelling at him, yeah. saying, you're never doing anything like that again. I think there were a lot of those calls. And, uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, I almost got fired early on because we... Uh, I asked for tickets for the Red Sox Angels series, and the Angels were owned by Disney, and... Um, I went with a bunch of Red Sox fans and had a great time. But we show up and they gave us the president's box, which is like right over home base. And it 
turned into an extra inning game and we were drunk and yelling for the Red Sox from <laughs> the Angels owner's box and literally got a phone call the next day from Michael Eisner's office <laughs> that uh, I was going to be fired. It was like it was bad, man. It was like uh, I made a $500 donation. The woman who got us the tickets, who was a nice woman, um, she was like in danger of losing her job. And, uh, I, I, and I remember saying to her, like, what's your charity? Like, can I do something? So I made a $500 donation to the Anaheim Humane Society or something. Just like, please, like, so sorry kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, that, you know, I'm not going to defend myself for being fired from that show. Do you know something's about to happen or does it come as a shock? Okay. A couple of things. One is I knew that, uh, the show was in, in, in bad shape. Um, and that we were in danger. And I think if ABC hadn't had bigger problems than us at the time, uh, you know, this was something that was on every night and it was like they had bigger fish to fry them anyways. And part of it was, you know, growing pains and part of it was, you know, probably it was not being well produced by myself. Uh, I'll take my, I'm culpable. Um, but I did think at the same time, like I knew, I believed so much in Jimmy's talent and I knew that he was so affable. And I thought that, like, if we can get through this, which Jimmy's done, and, and I give Jimmy a lot of credit. Here's the difference between me and Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel walked that tightrope walk so well with Disney where he, he didn't sell his soul like Jay Leno did. I feel like Jay Leno sold his soul um, for success. Jimmy stayed true to his voice and kept Disney happy and flew down to every fucking affiliate thing in florida every you know ann sweeney gets an award jimmy's there writing her speech like he gave so much of himself to that network and doesn't say anything and keeps his head down and at the same time he's kept his spirit like his soul like i mean he'd like he he absolutely uh i can just picturing now sal making fun of me saying this but uh but he kept his his he he kept his integrity you know and he uh, and he kept his voice, and he was true to himself. And you know, people talk about Man Show Jimmy. He had such a trouble booking that show in the beginning because people thought he was this guy from the Man Show. The guy you see on the show now is Jimmy. The Man Show guy was not Jimmy. That was a character for sure. But like, you see who this guy is now. That's who he is. I had trouble because I grew up in the Letterman world where. Um, I watched him throw Warren Littlefield out of his office saying, get the fuck out of my office. But I was raised to think in my work environment, you just don't put up with bullshit and the, the creative will win in the end and uh, you make a great show that becomes popular and then people will leave you alone. And that is sort of how it goes, but you have to get there. So like, you know, um, I remember Michael Davies telling me that there was an executive at ABC that go out to dinner with him, become his best friend. You know, it's important. And I didn't do it. You know, and there were there were times when I probably should have uh, listened for sure, and I didn't. And uh, I just I I don't want to say it was arrogance because I'd had the the, humi the humbling experience of being fired before, but um, yeah, I look back and I in terms of culpability, I blame myself. What happens that day? Is it a similar situation where your best friend Jimmy is there? Yep, yep, it was. Jimmy was there, and you didn't see it coming at all. No, I saw that one coming. <laughs> I saw that one coming. That one, that one, the writing was on the wall. I was hearing rumors. I heard that they were talking to people. Um, I was fighting for that job, you know, and Jimmy was ferociously loyal. It was a thoughtful 
determination, let's put it that way. And I think Jimmy was very uh, concerned. I think, you know, that was, uh, it was legitimately, and like, you know, to your earlier point, he took such great care uh, as a friend, you know, through the years, it never changed. And his loyalty has been great, and we've been partners for 17 years now. So it's like, uh, you know, I, I love that guy. Incredible. And, you know, and we are social together, and Adam Carolla, too. And, like, you know, Adam's gone, you know, in a different direction politically <laughs> than I go. And, uh, you know, but I, I said to somebody the other day, it's like, you know, if, you know, your brother went a different way politically, he's still your brother, right? You know, you still love the guy. And uh, Adam and I are very close still, and Jimmy and I are very close still, and uh, I love those guys. Talk about Jash. You know, YouTube came to us. Google, YouTube, um, when they were funding channels. And they said, we don't really have a comedy presence on here. We had, they had Shaquille O'Neal had a comedy channel, and he had Kevin Hart on occasionally, and that was their comedy channel. And they said, you know, we'll give you a bunch of money. You'll have complete creative autonomy. You'll never get a note from us. And in the end, you can own all that content 100%. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Well, TV sucks. You know, and uh, uh, and this is uh, feels like this is the future. I really love what you're doing there. It's amazing. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of somebody. You tell a story, a word, a sentence. Sean Connery. Sean Connery uh, came on Letterman show because, and had never been on the show before because he had, and it was in the press, prostate cancer that he was coming out. He wanted to show people that he was still able to be a big movie star. And uh, like you could still do action and stuff. Uh, so his his publicist said, we'd like Sean to come out on a bicycle. We thought that would be kind of cool. And uh, I was like, he's Sean Connery. He's James Bond. He can't go come out on a fucking bicycle. He's come out on a jetpack. And so uh, uh, we, uh, uh, I said, I'm going to try to see about this jetpack, which was ridiculous because he can't get a jetpack in a studio. They don't even really exist. So he called the Foy brothers who did the rigging for all the Peter Pan and everything. And we had him, and for a guy who had prostate cancer too, so uncomfortable. We had him, you, you harness them in from their groin essentially, and he's hanging above the Ed Sullivan Theater for an hour as we're loading in the audience. <laughs> and he goes through his monologue and everything. And then he lowers himself down with a jet pack, but the jet pack's basically two fire extinguishers shooting at the fire extinguisher as he's lowering down. And then these two babes walk him out. But TV Guy called it the entrance of the year. So that was sort of a cool thing, but it was ridiculous. Well, since we talked about the entrance of the year, we should just talk about the exit of the year, Madonna. Well, that was really funny because she'd been a running joke on the Letterman show and never been on it. And uh, and we were kind of anxious about her coming on because we figured she'd be pretty pissed off. And Liz Rosenberg, her manager, called up and said, yeah, you can have her. Uh, and she did a pre-interview and she was lovely in the pre-interview. And we had an idea for her that basically, so the onus of the segment wouldn't fall on her and she wouldn't be left to her own devices. We said, um, you know, we loaded up three clips. You just say, well, you've been mean to me or whatever, and we'll show the clips. And Dave will get embarrassed. And then you can sort of point at each one and make him squirm a little bit. And she liked that idea a lot. So she shows up at the taping and she was with this guy who was her makeup guy and they were clearly stoned. They were high on, and uh, um, she um, said she'd been smoking endo. And I was like, I didn't even know what that was. And uh, uh, so I walk into her dressing room and she goes, and I tell Dave before, and this is going to be great. 
you're gonna have no problems. I walk into the dressing room and she goes, uh, I go, hi, I'm Daniel. And she goes, suck my dick. I go, what? <laughs> she goes, suck my dick. And she and this makeup guy started laughing hysterically and I'm like, oh. And I'm like, oh shit, we're in trouble. Something's going on here that's not right, you know? And uh, so I start going through the segment. I go, you know, there's a bunch of, uh, oh yeah, this is what I said. I said, there's a bunch of segments lined up. You just say, let's show the first clip. You don't even have to remember what they are because I'm sort of nervous. And she's like, I don't want to do that anymore. And I go, what do you mean? And she's like, it's too much to remember. And I go, what do you mean it's too much to remember? And I go, it's just say clip one, clip two, clip three. She goes, well, we, we're, we smoke some endo. And uh, so in the interview, she talks to Dave. She goes, you ever smoke endo? So I'm not telling, she said it on the air. And uh, she goes, she did ask me if she could swear. And I said, yeah, if you want to. And But she just went crazy. And in the end, you know, she swore like a thousand times and she wouldn't leave the stage. And uh, we, I remember Counting Crows were making their network television debut on the show that night. And it was sort of a big deal because they had a hit album at the time and they were brand new and they'd never been on TV before. And we bumped the middle guest already. And we're about to bump Counting Crows and Morty says to me, get rid of her because I'm down on the floor with Morty and we're watching the show. And I go, what do you mean get rid of her? Because she just wouldn't leave. Dave kept saying, yeah, maybe it's time for you to go and she wouldn't leave. And he goes, I don't care, just get rid of her. So uh, I walked up and uh, it was during the commercial break and Letterman's sitting there and she says, uh, and she's sitting there and I go, uh, wave to the audience. And she waves to the audience and I take her hand and I lift her out of the chair and I go, say goodbye. And she's like, before she even knew what was happening and just sort of escorted her off the stage. And that was her uh, segment. John Stewart. What a great guy. I mean, like, really just, you know, I think um, in so many ways, uh, boy, did we miss him this election. You know, that was just brutal that he wasn't around for this because I think he changed the way America looked at politics. I think he was the voice, the conscience of our, our time in many ways. And, uh, uh, you know, Trevor Noah is great, but, I mean, boy, did we miss him this election. And... Uh, um, what a contribution he made to our culture. Norm MacDonald. Uh, a, you, you talk about geniuses, and um, here's a guy who can't help but be funny, even when he's trying not to be funny, and tells you things like, you know, comes in excitedly into the office and says, have you seen this video yet? And it's the annoying orange. You know, like that's him, like, <laughs> and and tells the corniest jokes in the world, and but but then when he gets up on stage or when he's talking extemporaneously, he just can't help himself. He's a genius, I think, comedically the way uh, you know Mozart was a genius with music. Like, I mean, it's like he can't help but have the stuff. You know, I mean, I think Adam Carolla does that, too. I mean, I think there are people who are students of comedy who succeed at that level. But I think that there are people who just close their eyes and things come out of their mouth that they can't explain. I mean, Letterman, honestly, also, you know, was so was funnier offstage, I thought, than as on stage. you know? Crispin Glover. I didn't produce the famous one where he kicked Dave. I produced the subsequent one where he came on and gave Dave... The, uh, the elevator shoe that he bronzed um, as a gift to Dave as an offering. And as he left the stage, Dave said to me, you want this? 
Like, he's going to throw it away. He's like, yeah, I want it. I've got it in my house. The bronze Crispin Glover elevator shoe. Yes. Sarah Silverman. Uh, I, I, I just love Sarah so much. And we've been friends for 20 years. Um, and, uh, you know, another um, unsung hero, I feel like, in comedy in terms of, you know, she puts her money where her mouth is in terms of she doesn't care as much about money. She cares about her conscience. She'll do things um, for reasons. She called me up the other day complaining that she heard on the street that we were doing a branded piece with this company that she didn't care for. And uh, um, I, I, you know, it means so much to me, her approval of these things. And, you know, we became very close during the Bernie Sanders stuff. We made that video together. Uh, I think got 50 million views. So like, you know, we, um, uh, you know, we became reacquainted when she was with Jimmy, uh, we became closer friends again. And now um, she's a partner with us. And it's, it's, you know, a great testament to both Jimmy and Sarah uh, that, that, you know, couples split up and like, you've got to choose a camp. And uh, we were able to still be separate, but also remain great friends. Dan Quayle. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I wonder whether people even know who Dan Quayle is. He was a vice president with Bush, and uh, he famously, this is how he became a producer. Everybody, when people talk about Sarah Palin, when people talk about Donald Trump, I mean, Dan Quayle was the original moron in the world of politics, and, and people were terrified of the guy and, and, and what he meant if he was, he was the next step to becoming the president and sunk. You know, for some reason, Bush chose him as his running mate. They didn't vet him, and he was a moron. And he went to a classroom in Jersey City, and um, there was a spelling bee with third graders, or fifth graders, third graders, and said, uh, uh, this kid wrote the word potato, and he made the kid put an E at the end of potato. And everybody was like, what the fuck is this guy? He really is a moron. And this kid's name was William Figueroa, and he's in Jersey City, and everybody was trying to get him on the morning shows, the radio shows. And uh, it wasn't my invention, but it worked. I sent a pizza to his house uh, with a note in it. And uh, they weren't getting out of the house. They, were, they did what any sensible family would do, shut down all the windows and uh, uh, the blinds. And uh, they, I said, call me, and uh, I promise this will be a positive experience for you and your family, and uh, uh, we'll, look, we'll take care of you. And he called, his dad called me, I talked to him on the phone, and then I talked to William Figueroa, and we got him. And as a reward for booking him, they let me produce a segment. And one of the things that was really important back then was the intro. Dave wanted a very succinct in intro that was funny and punchy. And uh, um, I wrote an intro that said, uh, two days ago, or yeah, two days ago, our next guest walked up to a chalkboard, the events which followed terrified a nation. And uh, please welcome William Figueroa. And the cover of the Daily News when he was on was Terrifying a Nation. And uh, they, they quoted it, and it was a big deal. And the segment went very well. And that was when I became a producer. Linda Lovelace. Uh, <laughs> uh, Linda Lovelace figures into my career because when I was uh, an intern and when I wrote the letter to Morty asking him to choose you know, between an old, tired guy and a young, uh, hungry person, um, we got an assignment. We, we were told we would have to do a research profile of one guest. Uh, we'd have the weekend to do it and turn it in. And everybody had to do it. It was like 100 people were doing it. And uh, it was Sammy Davis Jr. And at the time, there was no internet. There was no computers. 
I went to the New York Public Library immediately because I thought, oh, everyone's going to be looking for these books. And got yes, I can. And I couldn't believe that he'd written three fucking like 800 page autobiographies. It was brutal. And I was like, oh, shit, look at this guy. So I uh, started reading him, checked him out. And at one point he talks about uh, that when he got married, uh, he was the best. No, he was the best man at Linda Lovelace's wedding. I thought, well. There's got to be more to this story, <laughs> you know. Like this is this is not good. Uh, so I put down that book and I went to this. Uh, I read. I saw that Linda Lovelace had an autobiography. They didn't have it at the New York Public Library. I called around bookstores. There was this sort of like Wiccan hippie feminist bookstore in the village. They had it. Um, I read it and it was brutal. What it talked about in her book of all this sort of deranged, like it had Hugh Hefner fucking animals and like all these like crazy stories in there that really rung true but sammy davis jr was in there of course and all this sort of lurid horrible sammy davis jr stuff and i i put it in my memo my research memo and i said i know this isn't good for air but it'll give you some overview of like who sammy is and they said that nobody else had had that in their research that was what morty said and that's when he said we love what you did but we're going to give it to the uh guy from the Today Show who's been wanting to be a researcher for five years. And at that point, I had nothing to lose. So I wrote Morty the letter saying, what do you want an old guy who's been doing it forever? Somebody young. And I wrote him a letter. That's how we did it back then. The Juggies. Um, those girls were the greatest. They really were. We loved, I loved them more. I mean, I, I think I got more out of that show than Jimmy and Adam did, the man show. Um, they were called... The Juggies, it was meant to be tongue-in-cheek. Jimmy came up with the name, and I remember we had one uh, woman say, we want to be called the Bomb Squad, and Jimmy goes, you got to make your choice. You're a Juggie or you're out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so they were the Juggies, and uh, they were the best group of women because they loved each other. They had the right approach to the show. They were very sort of spirited. They had great energy. Um and uh, I'm friendly with a bunch of them still to this day. I just like, you know, they're all married and have kids now and, you know, uh, and th their careers. But 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 I, I love those girls. And I went out. I was I felt like the king of Hollywood because it was during uh, I had a, a couple single years there at the man show. And I just take the juggies out on the town. And it was great going to clubs. And like it was like, who the fuck is that guy? Because you know? Jimmy and Adam wanted nothing to do with this whole world. And uh, I was just like, oh, my God, it's the best. I'm going to mention two names, Jay Leno and Jimmy Kimmel. Couldn't be more different, I, in my in my opinion. I just, uh, and, and listen, I was at Letterman when Leno got The Tonight Show. And I will never forgive in my heart what he did uh, to get that job. And I think that people think that Jay Leno is Mr. Nice Guy. And I think that even in the Bill Carter book, it was a little bit candy-coated. But I think what he did was despicable to David Letterman, who was Johnny Carson's handpicked choice to be his heir apparent. And that was the only thing in the world that mattered to David Letterman. And I don't think it's the only thing that mattered to Jay Leno. I don't think Jay Leno cared a much, as much about that as, as Dave did. I don't know Jay Leno, so you know this is just my impression. But... When Helen Kushnick... Helen Kushnick was Jay Leno's manager. When Helen Kushnick was up to her shenanigans, where they planted a seed in the New York Post that NBC wanted Johnny Carson out, and uh, 
Uh, Johnny Carson had too much pride and in that moment decided he was going to quit The Tonight Show, which was paving the way for Jay Leno's entrance. I don't think that I, I don't think that Jay Leno did not know about that moment. And I think him hiding in the closet and uh, spying and going around and glad handing affiliates. Um, I don't know what sort of weird competition that was, but I know that was soul crushing to David Letterman, who I, you know, to this day value, you know, was a father figure to me in many ways in terms of my life and career. And uh, I'll never forgive Jay Leno for that. And I think that, uh, um, you know, he, when I say he sold his soul, I think he sold his soul for that good job. Um, I don't think he handled himself with integrity. Um, I think that uh, it's my opinion only. And you were there that day when Dave found out. I don't think I was in the room, but I was there and it was brutal. It was just unfair. And it was the only thing that mattered to David Letterman. And I don't believe that that was true of Jay Leno. And I think what he did was not something a friend would do to another friend. I just think it was bad behavior and ethically and any number of things. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I just, it, it, it's upsetting to me to this day uh, that, you know, it upset Johnny Carson. If, if Jay Leno had such reverence for Johnny Carson, he would have, um, I think, given acquiesced to what, what Johnny Carson wanted. Uh, you know, it was just shitty. Do you think he handled himself poorly when it came to Conan? I, I, I wasn't as connected to that. I, yeah, I thought it was shitty. Yeah, I did. But, uh, at the same time, you know, that was business for NBC and they were scrambling and, uh, um, and he got a nice payout, but I don't think for Conan, he's in it for the payout. I don't think he's in it for that. I think that's the thing. I think Conan and Letterman both were in it because this is what their life goal was, was for this job. And I don't, I don't know. I just, uh, it, it bothers me. So you're there at Letterman and all this shit goes down. Do you know if Jay Leno tried to call Dave? Yeah, I know he did. And then he tried to call him for years. Jay called me. I mean, Jay calls everybody. I mean, Jay, Jay, <laughs> Jay doesn't call, you know, uh, uh, you know. I, I give Letterman a lot of credit because in the end, he sort of extended that olive. It's funny, Jimmy Kimmel is similarly loyal to me about people that he thinks wronged me that I'm still great friends with. And uh, I just, you know, I think that I'm that way about him. I think that, you know, uh, uh, you know, loyalty is everything. Your proudest moment in show business. I mean, I've had such a series of victories and such a series of defeats. It's really, uh, you know, I, I look at the whole past 25 years and, and uh, marvel at sort of, uh, you know, um, it's it's kind of been perfect. I don't. I think it's sort of uh, there've been such you know brutal times and such great times. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, uh, being able to work with President Obama recently and and helping on things like Affordable Care Act and and uh, helping with uh, Bernie Sanders and and that where you can actually see impact of, of the stuff you do and and you, you can monitor on view counts you know you can sort of see who are you impacting and, and how are you reaching people and that's been really that's been great but I always felt that way about TV too even when we did the man show you know um, 
uh, I remember the first time we did the Man Show pilot. When I worked at Letterman, Letterman always said, let's keep the comedy above the belt. Let's not do below the belt comedy. And the first time we did the Man Show, we did a man ovations, which were inventions to make men's life better, <laughs> which is the premise of the bit. And there was this whole, uh, we had this uh, invention which was basically firecrackers and dog shit. And you put it in the dog shit and then it explodes everywhere so you don't have to pick it up. And uh, and this is our pilot. And I remember <laughs> we exploded Jimmy and Adam of the goggles on and the lab coats and they're exploding dog shit all over the set. And I go, I don't know whether we want to do this for the first show. I feel like, you know, like <laughs> is this really what we want to do for the first show? I'm thinking about Letterman, keep it, keep it above the belt. I'm thinking of him watching this and I'm going, oh my God, what the fuck is this? And... Uh, and Jimmy's like, sort of, it's funny, it's funny, you know, and did that make you laugh? And I go, yeah, it made me laugh. He goes, look, there you go. And uh, I kind of believe in that. And I think that, you know, uh, as a comedy producer, um, our responsibility is to make people laugh and uh, and allow them escape from their day to day. So what's the, the greatest triumph is like, you know, you can dismiss a show like The Man Show or any crank angers or all these things as silly, but in actual fact it's sort of like Sullivan's Travels the Preston Sturgis movie you know if you can take somebody out of their you know if somebody has cancer or somebody's sick or somebody's suffering or going through a divorce or whatever they're going through and you can make them laugh and take them out of this their misery for half an hour boy that's that's I think that's important work the biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level <sighs> biggest disappointment um yeah, I mean, the first time I got fired from Rosie was just brutal because I thought I was the golden boy and I thought I could do no wrong. And I think I had hubris and I think that I got, uh, you know, I, I think that I had some, that was a humbling moment. And, uh, you know, I always just, when I was a letterman, I thought, oh my God, I can't do any wrong. Like I thought, like, I'm going to, I'll just always be smooth sailing. I'm going to make a lot of money. And uh, uh, so that was a, the worst experience, but at the same time, sort of the most important experience, uh, the one that sort of gave me some perspective and uh, allowed me to have some element of, uh, well, just not to be arrogant. You know, I mean, I think it's one thing to be confident, but to be arrogant, I think, is insufferable. <laughs> we were around people who were arrogant all the time and presumptuous. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, yeah, so I think hopefully being grounded by disappointment has been terrible and good last question what advice do you have for the young person who's growing up in the small town in a commune somewhere in the country <laughs> who has those aspirations and dreams to get to the next level what is your advice of how to get there as an executive in this business and also as a young artist what kind of things and work ethic does it take to get to the point where or the next Sarah Silverman, or you're the next oh. Reggie Watts, or the next Letterman. I could do a whole podcast about this, and I think about it often with young people. And and uh, I don't know how you were growing up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, but I know that I was going to get out of Brattleboro, Vermont, and I was going to um, do something and be and create something and do something. I didn't know what it was, um, but I had a mother who supported me and believed in me, and and. Uh, uh, and then when I went to NYU, I, I look back and I sort of regret not believing in myself more because I was, you know, 
shaken with sort of this idea that that I wasn't going to be a good enough playwright. Um, and I think that that you know if you believe in yourself, I mean, like I, anything's possible. Like if you said you wanted to be, you know, a movie producer or an actor or a singer or whatever, I've seen everybody do this, and they aren't all matinee idol, great looking people. Um, they just have determination, and uh, it's it's everything's achievable, and especially now with you know where you don't have to jump through hoops with producers, you can actually go on and create your own podcast, create your own video uh, uh, show, uh, put it on YouTube. I mean, it is everything's available to everybody right now, and it's just sheer determination will 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 fuel your success. So don't don't think you can't do it and don't settle and if somebody's telling you you can't do it or you're not good enough don't listen to them unbelievable i have so enjoyed this and i'm so grateful that you came thank you so much well, i really appreciate it okay as promised i'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary i killed jfk it's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing jfk it's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Ben Zanny from Smithfield, Rhode Island. Love that town. Congratulations, Ben. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Bobbert Allen. Five-star review on July 11th, 2014, titled... Barry Katz is undeniable, man. Thanks, man. The review reads, quote, You ever been to China? Unquote. <laughs> Thank you, Bobbert Allen, if that is your real name. I love it. You're a true original. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to us. Thanks for supporting us. And you are a winner. This has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamer. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.